the diamond. I realized the diamond. Diamond. This, this is one Empathy Museum presents A Mile in My Shoes. These shoes are a pair of men's navy blue boat shoes. They're slip-ons and have a little bit of stripy blue and white elastic. They look pretty well-worn and they're pretty large. These shoes belong to Alf Dubs. This is his story. I can still see it in my mind's eye. You know, I can see my mother standing there, dark platform with late at night, German soldiers and swastikas and all that, anxious parents standing looking at the carriage windows before the train went off, a long time before the train left. I can remember all that. I don't know what I felt. All I know is that my mother had put into my little backpack some sandwiches, you know, sausages and things, and apparently when I got to London I hadn't touched them at all on the whole journey, so maybe I was more anxious than I realised. My name is Alf Dubbs, I'm a Labour member of the Lords. I arrived in Britain as an unaccompanied child refugee on a kinder transport from Prague. Kinder transport having been organised by wonderful people to bring young children from Germany, Austria and Czechoslovakia, mainly Jewish children, and bring them to safety in Britain. And I was one of them, and if I hadn't been on a kinder transport, I don't think I'd have survived the Holocaust. I was six years old, so I was one of the youngest on, on that train, and off the train went. An interminably long journey on hard wooden seats. We got the Dutch border, and uh, the older ones cheered because we were out of reach of the Nazis. And then we got to the Hook of Holland and on the boat uh, to Harwich and then to Liverpool Street. I was luckier than most because the majority probably didn't have family waiting for them. And I did. I had my father waiting for me. When the train got to Liverpool Street, I saw my dad on the platform and he came rushing over to me because I had my head out of the window. And the police pushed him away and said we all had to be checked off first. We had little dog tags on. We had to go into a room and every child had to, had to either be collected by a relative or a foster family. My father was very anxious because, because he didn't know whether my mum would ever get out. And it, at the last minute, she did get out. How she got out having been refused, I never know. But she, uh, but she got out and arrived in London the day before the war started. I hate being seen off on a journey. I love being met. And I say to myself, this is illogical, I should get over it. Why, why don't I want anybody ever to see me off if I'm going on a train or a plane or whatever it is? But I just don't like it. I feel uneasy about it. But I love somebody welcoming me on arrival. So it, it has stayed with me. I can only attribute it to what happened when I was six years old. But it's, it's an odd thing that stayed with me. And um, however much I argue with myself, I shouldn't feel like this. I still do. I spoke Czech and German, but my English was two, two or three words. School playgrounds are very tough places. And survival means you've got to learn the language. So I had to learn English quite fast. I remember some kids shouting at me, you're an evacuee. And I, and I shouted back, I'm not an evacuee, I'm a refugee. And that flummoxed them completely. I hadn't got a clue what that was about. My father was offered a job in a factory. And then we rented a house. And then a few months later, my father had a heart attack and died. 
So a bit tough on my mum because she had no pension, no nothing, not, not much English. So she hung on a bit and then we went to Manchester where she got a job scrubbing floors in British restaurants. She then became more senior uh, and she went to black, got a job in Blackburn and then she rented a little house. So we had a little place that was, I had my own bedroom in the house. <laughs> but anyway, it's quite tough on her because she, her boss left and my mum acted up for six months, applied for the job and was turned down. Uh, she acted up again for another six months and then she heard them say, we're not giving a job to that bloody foreigner. So she was so upset about that. She was dreadfully upset. and eventually got a job in the Isle of Wight. She was able to rent a nice flat, and nice for her, and then she thought she had leukaemia. And she's saying to me, it's a shame for the first time I've got a decent life, and now this has happened. My mum died, I was about 24, 25 then, because my father had died when I was seven, so I felt, uh, I had no siblings, so I felt quite uh, at a loss. I always see when people have lost a parent, even older, a lot older than I was, I was very sympathetic because I say, look, I know what it's like losing a parent. It's, it's an inc even if you know the parent's dying and you can see it coming over the years, it's still a very painful thing to happen. I was interested in politics from a very early age when my friends were not interested. Now, why was that? I put it down to the fact that I started puzzling as to why what had happened to me had happened. And I sort of, maybe I think I came to the conclusion that if evil men in politics can do such awful things, maybe other people could change it and do things for the better. I became a local councillor, and, and then eventually I got in the Commons for Battersea South and then Battersea. And um, I was elected in the same election that Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister. So there I was totally in opposition. Sometimes I was amazed to find myself there. The first time I got a question to the Prime Minister, I said to myself, I don't believe it's me. I can't be me here. And I kept thinking about it. <laughs> to the point I almost forgot my question. And then there was one time I was put on a, a committee dealing with a, a, a British nationality bill. And I thought a naturalised Brit, which I then was, sitting in a committee determining the future of British citizenship. And I thought, what other country would have given me that chance? So I got tremendous opportunities, and then I lost my seat. And then I became, after a year being unemployed, I became Chief Executive of the Refugee Council. So I did that for seven or eight years. Uh, and, and then they offered me a place in the Lords. I don't like titles. I have to say, I find them, I squirm a bit because, you know, if, you, if you've got a title in Britain, people either become unduly deferential or they think I'm a nerd. And neither is a good basis for, for rapport. I look, I'd rather we had an elected Lords, frankly, elected Second Chamber and so on. But we are where we are, and I, I make the most of it while I'm here. In 2016, I heard through MPs, my friends in the Commons, that Save the Children had done a study and there were 95,000 unaccompanied child refugees somewhere in Europe and really we, we felt in talking about it, something had to be done. I put down an amendment saying we should take some of the children. It led to Theresa May, who was Home Secretary, asking me to go and see her. She wanted me to withdraw the amendment and I said, why? And she said, well, if you if the amendment goes through, other children will want to follow. And I said, well, we can't turn our backs on young people who are vulnerable to criminality, 
trafficking, prostitution, drugs and so on. So I said, I can't withdraw my amendment. It got to the Commons and was slightly defeated. It went back to Lords, we got a slightly bigger majority still, and then something very interesting happened. Public opinion began to wake up to the issue, partly because of the terrifying pictures on television of boats sinking in the Mediterranean, of Alan Kurdi, the little Syrian boy, dying, drowned on the Mediterranean beach. And I think that tipped the balance because that brought pressure to bear on MPs who hadn't previously supported the amendment. And it led to Theresa May, still the Home Secretary, asking me to go and see her and said that the government proposed to accept the amendment, which I thought was very gratifying. Public opinion was what made such a difference. Then the government moved, began moving very slowly and they then announced that as far as my amendment was concerned they would limit the numbers to 480. So far we've got about 250 over under my amendment and that's a very disappointing response and I think the government are dragging their heels. They could be doing a lot better. I had a nice little story. There was a young Syrian boy on the Green outside Parliament about a year and a half ago. He was 14, I think. And I, I talked about his life. He said, do you know what I want to do? And he pointed to Parliament. He said, I want to become an MP. And I said, that's terrific, but terrific idea, but maybe you should meet a few MPs first before you finally make up your mind. But you know, these are people who want to do something. And, uh, and I think that characterizes refugees. So I'd, I'd hoped very much that my campaign on behalf of child refugees would spread on to making people more tolerant about refugees as a whole. And then along came Brexit, and I think that's turned the clock back, sadly. I think that, that, uh, that had a negative effect. But I repeat, I still believe that the majority of British people are humanitarian in their instincts. If they have explained to them about child refugees and what's happening, they're willing and happy for Britain to make more of a contribution than we're making now. I came to Britain and this country gave me a great welcome and enormous opportunities. I would just like to feel that unaccompanied child refugees coming to Britain today would be given the same warm welcome and be given the same opportunities that I was given. Alf's story was produced by Rachel Simpson. His shoes are part of a growing collection of footwear hosted by Empathy Museum's A Mile in My Shoes exhibition. The shoes and stories come from all over the world. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out where we are going next.